Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. He, he knew he was going to kill them and kill himself, but he'd already created the story for the doctor and the, and the policeman who knew the family. It was a small town, so that, that they could stay. He had a moment of madness, and it was a tragedy, and the three of them were victims because this came up time and time. It was all, all wrong, and it was part of the reason why I knew I had to write my story. And welcome back to Motive and Method, the show where we forensically unpack the motive and method behind the crime. With me, Xanthi Mallet. And me, Tim Watson-Munro, criminal psychologist. In this show overall, we're going to be looking at a deep dive into what really makes offenders tick behind some of history's most notorious cases. And today we're going to be looking at domestic violence, aren't we? And ultimately, when that goes terribly wrong and ends up in domestic homicide. It happened just... Overnight, the one night something kind of happened and it just clicked in in me that nothing was ever going to change. In the last episode, we spoke to Helen Cummings, who's a victim survivor of domestic violence and also now a very dear friend of mine. I met Helen back in 2014 through her advocacy for Kathleen Forbig when I first wrote about that case and my concerns with the case in terms of the veracity of the evidence used to successfully prosecute Kathleen Forbig. Since then, we've bonded over our passion for social justice, and Helen is a very outspoken advocate in all areas of social justice. But it's really Helen as a survivor of an incredibly toxic relationship, which she ultimately survived, and sadly another family didn't, and the coercively controlling individual that she had been married to. And so I think that gives us a a space to talk about some of these broader issues around coercive control, and ultimately when that can lead to domestic homicide, as it did for uh, a family that Helen became close to. Yes, I'm looking forward to unpacking her history and then looking at the broader implications. What can we learn from that history? How does it apply to other women in similar circumstances? The grooming, the love bombing, the control, the cutting off of connections with significant others in people's lives. This is the sausage and potatoes of the toxic uh, relationship and the person that ultimately may kill women. One of the things that typically happens in these relationships is that when they meet the offender, their partner-to-be, they love-bomb them. They shower them with love and attention. And for a lot of people, I think this is pretty good. I must be really special. And within a short time then, the control starts. So they say, where are you going? I want to look at your phone. I don't like your family members, so I don't think you should see them. So they systematically cut off all the points of contact in the community that may give the person a sense of balance and proportion. And they become conditioned to accept this with the passage of time. But what's the deep dive on this? What are the personalities that drive the crime? What is their motive? How do they function in the community? My assessment of a lot of these people is they, you know, they have jobs, they present well to others, and that's part of the problem because there are situations where often women will put their hand up and nobody believes them. 
Uh, they're undermined. They can present well. Do they drink alcohol? Do they use drugs? Do they have extramarital relationships? Tick all the boxes with some of them. What's been your observations uh, from, uh, from a criminological point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think we can certainly draw parallels between a lot of the offenders, can't we? Uh, the perpetrators, as we said, they're insecure, they're very narcissistic. Culturally, I think they often don't have a lot of respect for women, certainly don't see them as equals. So yeah, I think that the offenders are almost easier to kind of group together than the victims are. They're bullies too, you know, they're used to standing over people who are weaker than them. Um, but often don't stand up to people who are stronger than them. So there's a kind of hierarchy there. And by behaving this way, by controlling women, they feel better about themselves, which is really bizarre, but they do. And so this this episode is about coercive control and ultimately at its most extreme how it can lead to murder. So how would you actually describe coercive control? It's using coercion to control others. And so it can be as subtle as not speaking to your partner, ignoring them, passive aggressive sort of techniques. So they're not actually violent, they just withdraw. And the person who's the recipient of this feels inadequate and they get shaped into a type of behaviour where they know not to do certain things because they'll get this passive aggression and they start behaving according to the way that the partner wants them to. That's in its most benign form. And how do you think people end up in situations like this? How does it happen? Well, initially, gradually, but then very suddenly. I mentioned earlier this idea of love bombing, where they meet up and all of a sudden uh, the woman's getting presents, flowers, chocolates, money, trips away. And while that's happening, simultaneously, the offender is systematically undermining their sense of reality in terms of connections with other people in the community like friends, like family, like people at work. So it might be as subtle as, look, I don't like your family. They were rude to me. I don't want to see them. That then escalates to, I don't want you to see them either. And by then the person's ensnared. I don't like you studying because I'm threatened by it. They wouldn't articulate that. They'd give another reason. There's no need for you to study. There's no need for you to better your life because I'll look after you. I've love-bombed you. You know that I can provide for you. Uh, there's no need to keep your job. And I don't like the people that you associate with work because, of course, they're threatened. And eventually the person becomes corralled into this incredibly isolated, solitary life where they can't cross-reference what's going on. And so a new type of reality is defined for them that's solely predicated on the opinions, attitudes and behaviours of their partner. So it's, it's insidious, isn't it? It's in small incremental steps like coercive creep almost. It is coercive. That's a good way of describing it. Coercive creep. It just gradually creeps up on people and all of a sudden they realise they're swimming out of their depth and they don't know how to extract. And coercive control is kind of a new newish term, isn't it? I don't think that, you know, a few years ago it's something that would have been understood by a lot of the community, but we're certainly seeing changes in that now. We're seeing rules being brought in, laws being brought in in different jurisdictions to try and reduce the impact and, you know, obviously ultimately deaths that result from this kind of abusive behaviour. So if we look at the victim survivors in these scenarios and different people prefer different terms, it has a different meaning for them. So do you think that there is a common profile for people who can 
end up in these situations? Or is it just not that simple? It's not that simple. It could be anyone. And I've spoken to assessed survivors of this type of violence. They range from academics with PhDs, clever as you, perhaps not quite, because it's got nothing to do with education, nothing to do with IQ, and really not much to do with personality construct. I think the dynamic is that we all like to be loved, we all want to have relationships, or most people do, and people tend to go into these situations with an open heart and an open mind. But the offenders have a great capacity to suss the vulnerabilities of the victim. It's part of being psychopathic and having this uh, toxic view of the world, I guess. And so they hone in on these and they play to those weaknesses. And with the passage of time, people just become more kind of desensitised to what's going on. As the control and the violence escalates, it's normalised in a way. And I've also seen cases where often it is women have had dysfunctional relationships in the past, either through childhood or adult relationships, and they can, and obviously this is not all of them, but some people then seek out this dysfunction because it's become normal. And so the perpetrator may see something in in their target, but also um, the individual is actually in this cycle of toxicity themselves. It's, It's quite right. And they may have been exposed to a pattern of domestic violence as children. So their fathers may have been violent to their mothers. They may have copped a clip over the back of the head from time to time as children. And so for some of these individuals, the behaviour of their partner in some ways is normalised because of their own social learning. But again, I guess there is no overall profile because this could happen to anybody from any background, any educational status, any emotional status, strong people. You know, this is not about an inherent weakness in the survivor or the victim. This is all about the perpetrator and what they need from this relationship, which is ultimately control. The other thing I would add to that is just the availability of social support. So if the offender, the partner is effective in cutting off those ties in the community, the person's going to be increasingly more vulnerable quickly. Uh, There are other situations where friends and family are not cut off so much and they'll say, look, what are you doing? Why are you in this relationship? And some of those people are able to extract, I suspect, before it becomes uh, potentially murderous. What are the warning signs, do you think? What should they look out for in others that they may be concerned about? Well, I certainly have seen situations, and you've probably seen this too, where, you know, you may be out with one of your friends and there's constant phone calls asking where they are, needing needing to check in, who are they with, who are they talking to, when are they going to be home, trying to control their social network. People who have withdrawn socially because, you know, if they want to go out with their friends, that's going to cause problems. So it's easier to just not go right? So they end up losing their social support networks because, you know, they just stay at home because then they're not, it's not going to end up in a row or whatever. So somebody who's withdrawing, somebody who's changing, somebody who's maybe less confident, who's lost their sense of identity, because we see that a lot. But you've got to remember a lot of people who are in these coercive relationships don't actually realize the toxic relationship they're in because it is so insidious and so they just they try and keep the partner happy so initially they're just doing everything to keep them happy but they can't keep them happy it's not possible 
And so it just becomes a mindset. It's all about keeping that other person happy initially because they want them to be, and then it's through self-preservation. Well, to reduce their own anxiety, and I've certainly seen this in people I've known where they've been in these controlling situations, the amount of anxiety they experience when they get the call, where are you, what are you doing, constantly checking their phones, leaving meetings and social gatherings early, all of these things, I guess for the trained observer, they're quite apparent, but it's also about reducing their own level of anxiety. So they're already on the treadmill, aren't they? And they're reducing their own danger level too then. So if they can keep the other person happy, then it keeps them safer. It's all about not triggering the anger or whatever it is in their partner that's going to put them in danger. And you just end up living in that cycle of constantly monitoring everything that you're doing because you're trying to just get through without that next argument because the repercussions can be huge. When people are triggered like that, is it often truly disassociative? I mean, to the point where um, they really don't know what they're doing, they're almost outside of themselves? Or when, obviously, you've spoken to a lot of people who have committed crimes like this, are they do they know what they're doing? You know, They it- do. You know, some may pretend they don't. Uh, there's been some cases where people try and feign madness or dissociative reactions. Uh, they know what they're doing and... Uh, They may then try and dissociate from the magnitude of what they've done, but they're bad. They're not mad. It's poor impulse control, poor anger management, behaviour that can be escalated by drug and alcohol consumption and so on. But uh, the the idea of dissociating, this sort of automatism as a defence, as a partial defence to homicide is very rare because it's generally not genuine. So would would you say then that coercive control... Uh, and even when it leads to to murder ultimately, is really about lack of emotional regulation by the offender because it's their lack of emotional regulation that leads them to feel the need to control somebody. It's their insecurity, you know, within themselves. And then ultimately, if they kill somebody, that's through rage, isn't it? So it's lack of emotional control, which is at the bedrock of this problem. Uh, It is. And it's poor learning. They've never had their bottoms smacked, really. They've never learned consequences. You probably find, in fact, I've noted with the histories I've taken over the years, there's often a pattern of this sort of conduct stemming back to adolescence, where there's a desire to control others, bullying others, without any consequences. So with the absence of consequences, they become empowered. and It normalises for them. They don't see why they need to control their impulses. Nothing's going to happen anyway. And then, as we've discussed, see what you made me do, it's your fault. And they uh, portray themselves in some perverse way as the heroes sometimes. But it is all about a lack of emotional regulation, uh, an inability to control rage and uh, control one's impulses. And uh, it's a very deep-seated problem for these individuals. Starts with a psychological abuse. For some people, it plateaus at that because they avoid the conflict. It's interesting when they push back, that's when it's escalating because they're losing control, the perpetrator is. What about the <clears throat> the cultural kind of issues associated with the offender, the perpetrator? What have you observed? 
Well, certainly we see coercive control is across all cultural groups, but certainly I think that different cultural groups will express it differently. And so we certainly see in some areas, honour killings, for example, amongst some cultural groups are more common than amongst other groups. And so I think we've got those cultural backgrounds to it. And certainly in Australia, we have, you know, the, and, and the UK too, and the US, it used to be that the kind of male was the breadwinner for example, you know, in decades gone by. And gradually we've seen a shift to women taking on more roles outside the home, earning more money, being more independent naturally, maybe being more educated than their male partner, maybe being more successful on paper than the male partner. And I think in for some men, that's really challenged their sense of place in the family. And I think it's upset some of those dynamics within the household that some some people find really difficult to navigate. It's an affront to their masculinity in terms of their own social learning and how they're perceived within their culture and by others that are significant in their lives. And it can be very confronting. It's not to say it shouldn't be confronted, but I think that's certainly part of it as well, the role of the breadwinner. How can we change the system, do you think? What's being done? Is enough being done to educate the politicians, the lawmakers, the enforcers of the law beyond the community? So it's a top-down, a bottom-up approach to this problem. What do you think? Well, I think while, while in essence, and it is largely women are still dying week on week, then enough hasn't been done to stop this. I think we are slowly seeing a, a shift and a change, but we have to make sure that, that women are still allowed their voice. And, you know, we've seen a number of things that, you know, is well outside the conversation today where women are, their voice is being eroded again. And so women must have their voice and, you know, be allowed to speak and share their perspective and the politicians have to listen. And we have got some strong female politicians now and I think that's great because it means we have a a place and a voice in that conversation. To me, it comes about, it's education from little boys, little boys all the way up. If we can change the way little boys act and, and little girls, the way they interact and make it much more healthy then I think that's where we grow more appropriate behaviour as adults. The little boys grow up to be mature, respectful, uh, thoughtful men. Otherwise, they remain little boys, don't they? And the little girls grow up knowing how they should be treated, knowing that there are certain behaviours that are acceptable and not acceptable, and then recognising those. You know, when the guy does start to call you all the time or text you all the time or tell you he doesn't like your friends or your family and is trying to cut you off or telling you that he can control the money because you don't need to and he'll do that and you don't need to do that, then just those little things that make you just go, "Mm, that makes me uncomfortable, well, say so. Nip it in the bud. And so I think we grow girls that are willing to challenge it and boys that are no better. Because by the time it becomes problematic, it's then often dangerous because although their mindset might be of an immature little boy, they have the bodies and strength of men and they can be very dangerous. But men also have a part to play in this. There's no reason why only women can call this out. You know, if men see other men behaving badly then they have a role to play in that too in changing that whole cultural discussion. The victim is so immersed in the pathology, they can't see the forest for the trees. It's not a criticism, it's just a psychological process. And so people outside of the relationship, if they're able to 
maintain some contact with the victim. They can see what's going on objectively and they'll often notice changes in their friend. They become more withdrawn. They start with cancelling social functions because they want to appease their partner. They don't want to incur all this passive aggression and wrath if they go out and uh, they become conditioned to withdraw from friends and society And, of course, that makes them far more vulnerable to the type of abuse and coercive control that we're describing. So what is being done? You mentioned some, you know, social elements that can be brought in, social support networks. What else is being done to try and reduce the occurrence of coercive control generally? Because ultimately that will reduce the occurrence of murders if we can reduce that aggression in the first place. I think it's a work in motion and, you know, we're taking positive steps There's a lot more to be done. Uh, I think governments are now recognise the importance of this. I mean, with governments, it always gets down to cost-benefit analysis and how much do you want to spend on something? Is it politically favourable to do so? I think it is. And I would add to that that there's a huge cost-benefit in stopping this violence before it erupts. So educating kids at school, having communication classes, getting psychologists in at an early stage, it might cost money but it's ultimately going to save money and, more importantly, it's going to save lives. And obviously we're seeing changes in the legal system too now across different states and territories in Australia and worldwide looking at criminalising coercive control and some of these behaviours. And ultimately, again, I think that gets it firmly in the political agenda, the social agenda and ultimately in the media as well and gets people talking about it and, again, recognising the signs because it used to be so covert, didn't it? Like a lot of the things that went on in the home, child abuse was the same thing. It goes on in the home, you know, that's private, people don't talk about it and I think we need it out there in the light so that we can really, you know, shine a spotlight on it and hopefully reduce these awful occurrences. Education, social awareness... I think we'll all contribute to solving the problem as best it can be solved. Getting them out of the privacy of the home, neighbours watching things. I mean, I'm not advocating some sort of Orwellian mind control and we spy on one another, but people need to feel confident that they they can speak out about it. And when they do speak out about it, they're going to have the authority of the law behind them. But that can be really difficult, speaking out. I mean, if you're in a situation where you're concerned for a friend, for example, that conversation can be very difficult. You know, what is the what is the moment to have it? What are the ramifications for having that conversation? And what are the ramifications for not having that conversation, potentially? Well, it, it can be dangerous, too, for the person who's trying to do the intervention. And I've had cases where people have tried to do that and they've been badly injured as well, beaten up. And uh, one case, I remember years ago, someone was shot in the face uh, by uh, an offender who wanted to see his partner and this person tried to intervene. So it is dangerous. What are the consequences of not doing it? Well, the end consequence for some, one a week, is that they are murdered. So I think it's very pleasing to see that there's a greater awareness in the community of this problem. It's a big problem. And there's a great awareness of uh, the need for early intervention. It's a team approach. So the police are involved, the courts are involved, the legislature is now involved in terms of changing the law around it. And often these people just need to get the message. So uh, some people might be briefly incarcerated or incarcerated for a long time if they breach an AVO. Some cases it can be used as a tool though and people can take out AVOs in family court cases and so on 
And it doesn't take much for somebody to cross the Rubicon there and get into trouble. So it needs to be a balanced, measured, intelligent approach to the problem. And so there's not one answer to fixing this, is there? It's an incredibly complicated problem. If it were easy, it would have been fixed by now because obviously the majority of people, you know, recognise the significant harm caused and they want it to stop. But as you say, it needs to be a legal, a systemic and a personal approach that's really kind of top down, but also bottom up. Absolutely, both. And um, I think we're on that trajectory now. There's better awareness, better, better education, better discussion in the community about it, and these cases get the profile that they deserve. But it's not going to happen overnight. Well, I hope we are on the right trajectory, and I just want to see those stats going in the right direction that, you know, this is happening less and less often. Do you think, from a criminal psychological perspective, that it can be coercive control can be cured as a behaviour? It's a very good question. I think it depends when you instigate the intervention. And for some people, no. They might go to jail, they come out, they're just as dangerous and toxic as when they went into jail. But that's not to say that you don't have a try at changing them. Uh, there's good programs in prisons in New South Wales and ex elsewhere around Australia now that look at these issues. The problem is they're under-resourced and understaffed. There needs to be more psychologists working in prisons with proper funding. So that's at the after something's gone wrong. Do you think then it's possible to change these behaviours in childhood? And that's where our attention should also be duly focused, is changing those mindsets, those behaviours, to prevent this from happening in adulthood. I think that's your best chance. Before these behaviours become entrenched in the person's way of thinking and what they do and how they problem solve, so it needs to occur at, at an age where a child is receptive to it, but you also need to ensure that it's not undermined by what's going on in the child's home. It's all very good to have these classes at school, but then they go home to a violent home where dad's beating up mum, controlling mum, beating the kids, and I'd have five or six of these cases a week. Not that they're charged with it, but the histories I take, there's often a history of being exposed to what I would describe as severe domestic violence during their formative years, which shapes the way that they interpret the world and the way that they problem solve. I think the problem is much greater than just the homicide. That's the extreme form of what we're talking about. And do you think once somebody has committed coercive control, as we said, this is now becoming criminalised in some states and territories across the country, is incarceration the only answer for these individuals? Look, I think some people need to be in jail to protect others. I do. And I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not a guy that thinks you lock everybody up, but some dangerous people, the community needs to be protected from them. But I think that's, you know, it's really closing the gate after the horse has bolted in terms of their offending. I'm much more about being proactive, early childhood intervention, education. The other issue, of course, is substance use in the family. And uh, drugs like crystal methamphetamines, ice, the havoc that wreaks on people's brains is just extraordinary in terms of impacting on the prefrontal cortex of the brain. That's where personality integration occurs, higher cognitive functioning, impulse control, consequential thinking. So if people are using ice, drinking too much alcohol and so on, their judgment goes out the door and their impulsivity increases. And it's a very dangerous mix 
particularly if you put it in the context of those personality variables that we've described and the type of social learning that the offender or the partner's experienced during the course of his life. Yeah, and I guess before we close, I just want to bust one myth that always gets talked about when when we hear of another woman who's died. Often you'll hear in the media reported that there was no history of domestic violence. And in my head, I always think there was. It's just it wasn't reported. Guaranteed, if you talk to their friends, their family, somebody knew something. Somebody was fearful. They knew something was wrong. And just because there's been no report of domestic violence formally beforehand, it was there. People don't go from zero to 100 in a heartbeat like that. No, they don't. And it depends how you define violence. It may not be fisticuffs. For me, the sexual control that you described, the psychological control, the passive aggression, the cutting off of ties, to me, that all represents psychological violence. It's a form of violence. It's just not physical violence. People just don't go from zero to Mach 3 in a nanosecond, do they? There's a long history of it before it culminates in a murder. Yeah, and hopefully if we get better at recognising those signs and speaking about them, then ultimately we can save some lives. I would hope so. It would be wonderful to get the statistics down, but it's going to take a concerted effort that's now occurring, more money, better education, better awareness, better intervention before they offend and uh, much better intervention once they go to jail in terms of retraining them to control their impulses and re-evaluate the premises that they act upon in terms of their attitude towards women and their belief that women are a chattel who need to be controlled. In essence, I think what we've done across these two episodes is really pull apart coercive control, you know, these toxic relationships, um, what the red flags are, and ultimately who can be a victim, which in essence is anyone, isn't it? You know, there isn't really a type of victim. Anyone can fall prey to these controlling individuals. But we did see patterns with the offenders and, you know, the way they perpetrate their crimes. It's a universal story, regrettably. Anyone can be a victim there for the grace of God or whoever go I. There are certain patterns with the men, however, and uh, in some ways I think if there's earlier education, early prediction, uh, we may be able to make a difference in terms of reducing the frequency of homicides. One a week in Australia is troubling. Yep, and this is a pattern replicated across, you know, the world. You know, this is certainly an issue that many countries are grappling with. So thank you for listening to Motive and Method. If you've enjoyed this show, you can give us a five-star review, you can recommend us to your friends and family, or subscribe to our channel and feed. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Tim Watson-Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallett.